good, good. Well, we, uh, we're privileged today to be able to hear from Steve Payne, who is a uh, Wycliffe Bible translator and uh, missionary. And, and one of the great things about our church I've always loved is that we are so supportive of, of missions causes that, you know, we take it seriously when Jesus said, go to the uttermost parts of the earth to make sure that we are doing that, whether we have missionaries going there uh, or whether that we're giving uh, part of our offering or tithe and offering to missions, uh, we support missions. And actually, if you, if you give at our church, if you, when you give, uh, a portion of that always goes to support missions around around the world. Uh, in fact, in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find a little pamphlet. It's a mission support we, uh, missionaries we support, and it has a it's, it's you kind of open it up. It's big and long, right? And it has all the different missionaries uh, that we support or missions causes that we support um, that are direct missionary support. We also support uh, through the cooperative program, the North American Mission Board, Annie Armstrong. Uh, offerings. Those are those are all kinds of things that we support for missionaries and missions all around the world. So very exciting to be a part of that. Uh, not only not not all of our missionaries that we support though are gifted preachers as well, and uh, and Steve is. So we're going to get to hear from him uh, in just a moment. I'm glad to to hear his his sermon is amazing for us uh, today. We're going to be blessed by that. God's going to uh, bless the the preaching of His Word. Can we pray together before uh, we hear that though? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for. Your word, that it is uh, living and active, and that it is shared today. We, we ask that you would not let that return void, that you would, you would let it impact our hearts. God, we ask that our hearts would be open and receptive to hear, that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you would have us here. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin, that you would challenge us and change us, that, God, you would uh, shape us and conform us into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. We want to be more like him everywhere we go. Help us to honor you with what we do and what we say. And God, as we hear, that we would be, be changed by it. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and welcome Steve Payne. Thank you, Brandon. Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you again. It's now been several years since the last time we came to speak, so for those of you who do not know us, I want to give maybe just a brief overview of our ministry with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Laura and I left to go overseas in 1989, and First Baptist started supporting us in 2003. So you've been partnering now with us for 16 years, and we really appreciate that, so thank you. Well, a lot has happened in the 30 years we've been with Wycliffe, and through it all, God has been faithful to us. We started with one language in Senegal, West Africa, translating the New Testament and doing the Jesus film for a tribe called the Kwatai. Those 10 years were not easy. We lived with our two small children in a mud house with a tin roof, didn't have any electricity or running water, struggled often with malaria and other sicknesses. Once rebels shot up a vehicle we were driving in with an automatic weapon, but God protected us and watched over our family. We then served for three years in the island nation of Vanuatu in the South Pacific, where I was working with five different languages as a translation coordinator. And after a 7.3 earthquake there, we started calling the island Shake and Bake. We also had the largest Category 5 hurricane ever recorded in the southern hemisphere bear down on our island. Had 196 mile an hour sustained winds, 39 foot storm, weight, uh, storm surge. But once again, God protected us as people prayed and just as the winds started to touch the island, 
God turned that storm 120 degrees and it went out to sea. Amen. After Vanuatu in 2003, I started work for a seed company, which is an affiliate of Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I, I started doing something that was brand new at the time in Bible translation, training nationals to do the translation work themselves. And I worked with 10 different language groups in some of the most difficult war-torn areas in Africa, Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, and Central African Republic. In one place, they told me to make sure that I would walk down the center of the road because there were still unexploded mines off to the side. Well, then in 2011, Laura and I faced our greatest challenge ever as she was suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer and rapidly went downhill. Melanoma is one of the worst cancers at stage four with just a 0.5% survival rate for five years. But God intervened and did a miracle, and now, seven years later, she is cancer-free and still with us. So praise the Lord for that. Amen. Right after her first clear scan, she got on a plane with me to a mountainous country in South Asia, and that's where we've been working since, making trips there several times a year from our home in Southern Oregon. And since 2012, we've trained nationals there in 20 different languages that previously didn't have a single verse of scripture in their language. And then we also consult and check the books that they translate before they're published to make sure they're accurate and clear and natural. And we also mentor new translation consultants. There's just a growing need for more consultants because as nationals do the translation now and it's going faster and faster, we need more consultants to be able to check their work before it's published. So we're involved in mentoring new consultants. So anyway, that's a bird's eye view of God's faithfulness to us over these last three decades as we've been involved in the ministry of Bible translation. And we really had no idea when we started that we would ever do more than just that first language. But God used the experience we gained there and led us down a new road, which We've been able to see many new languages uh, come to have his word. Well, today I'm excited to be able to share with you a message that God has put on my heart from Acts chapter 10. I'm a Messianic Jew and I've been thinking for several years now about how God first made the Jewish people his chosen people, and then th how things changed so that the Gentiles were also able to become God's people. And Acts 10 does a good job of helping us understand who God's people truly are. As Peter, a Messianic Jew, goes to talk with Cornelius, a Gentile. And as we'll see in a moment, that becomes a watershed moment in the life of the church, and it directly impacts the mission work that we do today. In the last 2,000 years, God has inter intervened countless times in human history, and I'm sure in your own lives as well, protecting, healing, providing, leading people to himself. But in all the years since the resurrection, he's done one thing which I believe surpasses all others by far. And it takes place here in Acts chapter 10. If, if Acts 10 were cut from our Bibles, and in other words, if God had not directly intervened in human history as he did, then you would not be sitting in this church today. This building wouldn't exist. And 
there wouldn't be probably one single church in all of Siskiyou County. Now, that may sound like a very audacious statement, but after reflecting on the significance of what God did in Acts chapter 10, I believe that when we truly wonder, understand what takes place here, it's like, it's like a key that unlocks for us God's heart and God's plan and the mission that he's given to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. Well, let me make another somewhat bold statement. Despite all the growth we see in the early church, in the first chapters of Acts, I believe the church was headed for failure. By which I mean that it was not going to realize its God-given mission. And here's the reason why. In Acts 1 to 9, the apostles and the believers, they were only sharing the good news with other Jews. The Jewish Messiah was only being proclaimed to the children of Israel. And following that trajectory, Christians were destined just to become another Jewish sect. So just like you have the Pharisees, a party within Judaism with certain beliefs, and the Sadducees and the Essenes, other parties with other beliefs, so also Christians would have just been another sect in Judaism, one that acknowledged that Jesus was their Messiah. Well, I'd like to explain why I think that's true. You know, I've always considered what Jesus told the apostles right before he ascended into heaven as being what was, what was most on his heart for them, his last words, his final instructions, his marching orders, to go and make disciples of all nations, what later came to be called the Great Commission. And I used to think that the apostles, they understood that God was now offering salvation to all people, and that they were to go into the, all the world and preach the good news to all nations. And then I thought that the book of Acts described how they started to do that. Ah, but if we look more closely, we'll see that's not the case. The apostles, they didn't understand. And so God had to intervene to get them on the right track. Remember after Jesus' resurrection, when he met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they were downcast because he had just died. They said to him, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. That's what those Jewish disciples of Jesus had been hoping for in a Messiah. Remember at that time, Israel was under Roman occupation, which means that the Jews had been conquered by Rome and the Romans were taxing them and forcing them to work and crucifying any who rebelled against their authority. So these two disciples of Jesus, they were looking for deliverance, for God to once again show his favor to the nation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, and they wanted a Messiah who would free them from oppression, just as God had delivered them from Pharaoh's oppressive hand when they were in Egypt. Now, the apostles themselves were focused on the nation of Israel. Remember in Acts 1, right before Jesus ascended to heaven, they had just one question for him. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, their hope also was for the nation of Israel, that God would restore their greatness, like when they'd been ruled by King David and King Solomon. 
But Jesus' reply shows his concern now is for much greater than just one nation. He told them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But they didn't get it. They didn't yet understand that God's people are no longer just one nation. Remember in Acts 5 when the apostles were put in jail and then miraculously set free and then brought again before the, San, uh, the Sanhedrin? Peter tells the high priest, God exalted him, Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. So the apostles as well are focused on the people of Israel. Now, as a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, and they started speaking in different languages. And all the crowd of people who were there and heard them, they were utterly amazed. And they said, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, and it goes on to list 16 different places. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Well, when I've preached on this passage in the past, I've always said, well, I'll tell you what it means. God is giving them a blueprint for how they are to go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations in Greek is ethne, in which we get ethnic groups, language groups. So make disciples of all nations by declaring the wonders of God, the word of God, in the heart languages of people so that they can understand and have faith and believe. Now, I still believe that God gave the early church this blueprint for how to carry out the Great Commission. But recently, I've come to see that the apostles didn't really understand their mission. See, all those people named in Acts 2 from the different countries, they were actually Jews or proselytes who had come to live in Israel or who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And for about the first decade after Jesus ascended into heaven, the church was composed only of Jews, and they were only in Jerusalem. And it's not until Acts 8 that they start to go beyond Jerusalem on the day that Stephen was killed. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, both of which, by the way, are still in the country of Israel. So there's been no outreach to the Gentiles, no attempt to make disciples of all nations. Now, I think there's a good reason for this. Remember when Jesus called the 12 apostles to go up on the mountain with them, with him? He then sent them out with these instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, not only is that what Jesus told them, but he himself spent his whole public ministry in Israel. And with just a few notable exceptions, his teaching and healings were all for Jewish people. 
But when the Jewish nation rejected and killed their Messiah, a new door opened, a new covenant, as it were, which was actually the fulfillment of the old Abrahamic covenant in which God had told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and everyone who curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In John's vision and revelation, he sees the final fulfillment of God's plan. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But Peter and the apostles didn't understand that they were to reach out to Gentiles. Instead of fulfilling the Great Commission, they were committing the Great Omission, which is the title of today's message. They were only thinking of the nation of Israel and the Jews as God's chosen people. Remember that from all the nations, God originally chose the Jews to be his children, and he entered into a covenant with them. And he gave them his law, and he dwelt among them, and he drove out their enemies. Moses tells us, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. When the Jews left Egypt and entered the promised land, God told them to keep separate from the other nations, just as they had remained separate in Egypt for 400 years, living in the land of Goshen. Over and over, he tells them that if they associate with the Gentiles, they will be led astray to follow their gods. Moses said, Do not marry any of them, because then they would lead your children away from the Lord to worship other gods. If that happens, the Lord will be angry with you and destroy you at once. And Joshua said, But if you associate with the Gentiles, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So the Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. The Gentiles had many pagan gods and idols which they themselves had made. The Jews just had one god, who they called the god of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their Jewish ancestors. See, in their eyes, God was the god of the Jews. Jews would not go into a Gentile's house for risk of being defiled. And an archaeological inscription found in Israel said that if any Gentile entered the temple... He was to be put to death. Remember, that's why Paul was thrown into prison later in Acts, because they thought that he had brought an uncircumcised Gentile, Trophimus of Ephesus, into the temple and thus defiled it. So as I think you can see, there's this great historic divide between Jews and Gentiles. And we have to remember that the 12 apostles were still Jews, even as followers of Jesus. They grew up Jewish. They went to synagogue every Sabbath for the reading of the Torah. They went to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the feasts. They sacrificed animals for their sins. They did their best 
to keep the law of Moses all their lives, 20, 30, 40 years. They've been living as faithful Jews. And when they met Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, they didn't stop being Jews. They continued to celebrate the feasts as they traveled with him. And they continued trying to keep the law of Moses just as their master did. Not the traditions of the Jewish leaders, which Jesus was quick to point out as hypocrisy, but the laws which God had given to his people Israel. So when Jesus told them after his death to go and make disciples of all nations, which includes Gentiles, and to take the good news to the ends of the earth, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They still believed that the Jews were God's chosen people, and if other peoples wanted to please God, well, then they would need to be circumcised and become Jews. Okay, until this point, everything I have told you has been background information, but I think it's helpful for us in order to understand why God had to intervene here in Acts chapter 10 and set the church on a new trajectory. So now let's look at Acts 10. It starts in the port city of Caesarea, which was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. And there was a man there named Cornelius. He was an officer in the Roman army. He was a Gentile. Verses 1 to 2, chapter 10, say, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So Luke tells us that Cornelius was God-fearing, which is a technical Hebrew expression, meaning that he believed in the God of the Jews, and he followed certain practices like praying to God, and giving to the poor. But he was a Gentile. He had not been circumcised. So Cornelius has a vision in which an angel tells him to send someone to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon called Peter. We'll bring a message by which Cornelius and his household can be saved. The next day, as Cornelius' men are nearing Joppa, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And God, who is orchestrating this whole divine encounter, also gives him a vision. Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. <laughs> Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, now, of course Peter was wondering. He was totally confused. In Leviticus 11, it was God himself who told Moses and Aaron which animals were clean which the Jews could eat and which animals were unclean that they were not to eat. So here, God is telling Peter something different, that he can now do something which before was prohibited. So Peter is confused. Does this just have to do with eating? Or is it the whole law which is no longer in effect? Is this just for him, 
Or does it involve others as well? While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, normally, Peter would have hesitated. Remember, he's still a Jew, and the Jews, even the Christian Jews at the time, were not associating with Gentiles. But God had told him to go with them, and so he's willing. What about you and me? Are we willing to follow God when it's difficult to understand his ways? The next day they arrive in Caesarea, and Peter enters the house. The text says in verse 27, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why are you sent for me? Now by entering a Gentile's house, Peter is breaking the Jewish law, isn't he? Why would he do that? Well, obviously he's had some time to reflect on the significance of the vision that God gave him. And he rightly understands that this vision is not just about foods that would make a Jew unclean, but it was about the people the Jews considered unclean as well. So Cornelius tells Peter about his vision and why they sent for him, and they're now all gathered and waiting to hear what the Lord has to tell him. So Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ? And in the next seven verses, Peter goes on to tell Cornelius and his Gentile family and his friends this good news about Jesus and all he did in his ministry and how he can forgive their sins if they believe in him. But take a look again where Peter says, I now realize God doesn't show favoritism. See, previously he thought that God did show favoritism. He had chosen one people, the Jews, out of all the nations, and he accepted them because they obeyed him and the laws he'd given them. But now Peter realizes that something is different. Something's changed. What before was unclean, God says is no longer unclean. Now he realizes that God is accepting as clean people from every nation who believe in the Messiah Jesus, even Gentiles. Now, if the story ended here, maybe today you, as a Gentile, would be a Christian. But, maybe not. So God does what I consider to be the most important thing he's done in the 2,000 years since the church was birthed. Something that changed forever the course of human history. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. 
wow, the Jewish Christians that had come with Peter from Joppa, they were astonished. They were amazed. God was accepting, giving his stamp of approval, making his own these Gentiles who were not even circumcised. They weren't Jews. They thought if a Gentile believed in Jesus as Messiah, they need to be circumcised and become a Jew because it was the Jews who were God's chosen people. But here God has poured out his approval on these Gentiles before they took any outward step to become Jews. Now to us, that might seem like a very slight distinction, but for them it was huge. If you want a key to help you unlock and understand much of the New Testament and Paul's ongoing fight against the false teachers. It has to do with this exact issue. Do Gentiles who believe in Jesus need to become Jews? In Acts 15, some of the Christians are teaching that when the Gentiles believe in Jesus, they need to be circumcised and follow the law. Paul and Barnabas say they don't. So both parties go before the apostles in Jerusalem to present their case. And the decision made there by the council in Jerusalem is based on what took place right here in Acts chapter 10. It says there, God showed that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he, he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? In other places in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a seal, a mark which shows that we are owned by God. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1.13 says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the, pro the, the promised Holy Spirit. So back in Acts chapter 10, when Peter saw that the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius and the other Gentiles at his house who had believed, he said in verse 47, Well, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now in Acts 11, we see that when Peter returns to Jerusalem, he is criticized by the Jewish Christians for having broken the law by entering the house of a Gentile. And so he tells them the whole story of the vision he had here in Acts chapter 10 and what happened when he got to Cornelius' house. And he concludes... So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? And then note this. Note the response of the Jewish Christians who had criticized Peter. It's like a, a light clicked on and they realized that God is now doing something different. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What they're saying is, wow, even Gentiles can be saved. And that's without becoming Jews, but just through repentance and faith. Well, right before Peter's vision of the clean and unclean animals in Acts chapter 9, God had called Saul to become a missionary to the Gentiles. 
The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. But remember, Saul was not one of the original 12 apostles. He needed a stamp of approval on his ministry if the church was going to grow undivided. And that's why I believe that God gave the vision of clean and unclean animals to Peter. Because Peter was the head apostle, the leader of the church. Remember when Jesus had asked the apostles, who do you say I am? And Peter responded, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him what has become for us today a difficult passage to understand primarily because of the way the Catholic Church has interpreted it by making Peter the first pope. Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So I believe that here in Acts 10, where Peter baptizes these Gentiles who had believed in Jesus, He's exercising the purpose for which God had given him the keys to unlock the door of the kingdom of heaven for the Gentiles, which previously had been closed. And so, because God intervened in order for that door to be open, you are sitting here in this church today in Mount Shasta, one of many churches in Siskiyou County, one of many in California, one of many in America and around the world. See, Jews today only number around 15 million, while Christians, Gentile Christians, number over 2 billion. So God intervened in human history, and Peter, he got it. And Paul got it. And the apostles, they got it. And in the rest of Acts, we see how they finally start reaching out to Gentiles, how they finally start doing that last command that Jesus gave them to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. You know, a lot of times I think that we Christians today in America are sort of like the church before God gave Peter this vision and poured out his spirit on the Gentiles. I think we tend to focus on the first part of that command, go and make disciples. And so we're involved in making disciples among our friends and people at work and in our community and our home group, introducing people to Jesus, helping them grow in their faith. And all that's good. It's very good. Don't get me wrong. But the command Jesus gave us is this, go and make disciples of all nations. Ah, that's not so easy, is it? But the early church started to do it, and we can too. There are people in all nations, like Cornelius, whose hearts are restless for God, who, who are eager to believe. But someone must go and announce the good news to them. How will they find God unless there's someone to point out the way? Not long ago at our church in Oregon, I went to a pop at our life group that Laura and I had previously attended just to catch up with the folks there. And there was a new guy there, and he came up to me, and he said, you don't know me, but I remember the last time you spoke on missions at church several years ago, and, and it really impacted me. 
So I contacted a missions agency, and I told them I'm a construction worker, and I asked, is there anywhere they might be able to use me? And I ended up going to Tanzania, and it really changed my life and my outlook on the lost and on the Great Commission. Well, how cool is that? Maybe God will speak to some of you here today to, to do something like that, to use the skills and gifts that God has given you to go out into the world and to be part of inviting all nations to live under the kingship of the Messiah, Jesus. Well, as I mentioned, for 32 years now, Laura and I have been involved in this as missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators and Seed Company, and we've had the privilege of training nationals to do translation in 30 different language groups, which previously didn't have any scripture. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And if people don't have God's word in a language they can understand, how can they come to faith? But there's still a lot of work to be done. Of the more than 7,000 languages in the world today, 2,100 are still without a single verse of scripture. What do you think? Might God use you to help reach the unreached? Pray, give, and go. If you want to be involved in reaching the nations for Jesus, those are the three things that I would recommend. Pray for the unreached, that God would break through to them. You know, more people have died for their faith in Jesus in the last hundred years than in the last 1,900 years combined. But despite the persecution, the good news is spreading faster than it ever has before. And I think prayer is a big part of that. This last September, I started training eight new teams of national translators in South Asia. And before I started, I contacted the Bibleist People's Prayer Project to see if anyone had been praying for those projects, those people groups. And they gave me the contacts of 80 different people who had been praying, some as long as 15 years. Amazing. And through their prayers, God was now finally going to start bringing his word to these people groups. So if praying for the unreached is of interest, you can just Google Wycliffe's Bibleist People Prayer Project and sign up to pray for one of the groups who after 2,000 years are still waiting to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you want to personally pray for Laura and I in our ministry with Bible translation or help support us. In a table in the lobby, we have these prayer cards, invitation to partnership, and we have a sign-up sheet where you can receive our prayer updates. So please avail yourself of that in the lobby. So you can pray. Second, you can give. As Brandon mentioned, part of what you give here to the church at First Baptist goes to help support missions. And there are many mission organizations you can support directly if God should so lead you. And third, you can go. Both the church here and most mission organizations have short-term outreaches to places all over the world, bringing Jesus to those who have never heard. And you can use your skills and your talents to help in that endeavor. And through a short-term experience like that, you can then see whether or not God might be calling you to serve overseas full-time. A number of years ago, Laura and I were speaking at a large church 
on the East Coast for their week-long missions conference. And the pastor was interviewing us in the main service when all of a sudden up in their balcony there was this loud thump and some shuffling noises. And then a cry rang out twice. Is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor in the house? And immediately several men jumped up from their pews and ran up the aisles and up into the balcony. And the pastor wisely stopped interviewing us and just led the congregation in prayer for whatever emergency was happening up there. And after the man who later found out had a heart condition was taken out on a stretcher, the pastor was going to try to resume the interview. But I asked if I could say a few words first, and this is what I said. We just heard an urgent plea for help, and several jumped up to answer that call. Laura and I are here telling you about the urgent need reaching the nations with people dying who've never heard the good news that Jesus can forgive their sins. Who will respond to that call? I believe the most important thing that God has done in the last 2,000 years is that he unlocked the door to allow Gentiles to be part of his church, his people. See, God is weaving a tapestry, a tapestry made up of all peoples, all ethnic groups, bringing to fulfillment the promise he gave to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through faith. So let me finish by asking us a question. How are we joining God in what he's doing in bringing all peoples to himself? Oh, may we join God in what he's doing. Amen. All right, I want to take a moment of silence now, and I want to give you the opportunity to, to talk to God and just ask him, Lord, how do you want me, or how do you want me and my family to be involved in making disciples of all nations? So take a moment, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, I pray that you would hear our prayers and guide us. Help us, Lord, not to be guilty of the great omission, but to join with you in the great commission. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. We're going to have a time of prayer now just as we end our service. And, uh,